to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. I'm very glad to have today as our host, as our guest, uh, Anna Holmes. Um, Anna, Anna is uh, probably quite celebrated among some of you as the founder of Jezebel, although she left Jezebel in, 20, in 2010. Mm -hmm. And she tells me she has to sort of not look at it anymore because it pisses her off. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what I said. It could piss me off. <laughs> it could. Um, but uh, she does uh, allow herself to be lured there when, uh, when she finds links to, from social media that, mm -hmm. that attract her. She is uh, now at Fusion. She's also a columnist for the New York Times. And she has had one of those uh, careers as someone who was an early person to embark on the, on the digital journey and has been greatly successful at it, both as a, well, you know, as, a, as, as creating a, uh, a website that has been a great success and also at being a voice that was one of the ones people listened to as this uh, has all evolved. Anna, we're very glad to have you with I'm us. I'm very glad to be here, thank you. The floor is yours. So I wasn't quite sure what um, I was supposed to be talking about because uh, I know the title of this kind of talk was um, Emerging Voices in Digital Journalism, and I don't really consider myself to be an emerging voice because I'm over 40. So I feel I feel that I, I, I try to find emerging voices in, in digital journalism, but I don't know if I'm actually one of them. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background on me, uh, I got into digital journalism in 2007 uh, when I started Jezebel. Before then, I was in print, and I had um, studied journalism in college. I had um, had internships at magazines, and then my first job out of college was at a magazine, uh, Entertainment Weekly, and I had worked at a variety of kind of entertainment and, and women's magazines, which, while fun, because I liked my colleagues um, and felt they were all very smart, was not very rewarding in terms of the sort of content we were producing, particularly the, the women's magazines. This was um, in the late 90s to the mid-aughts, and I think that was the, the moment when women's magazines, although they were very popular and, and, and sold a lot of copies and made a lot of money for their parent companies, I felt they were doing a lot of damage um, to the women who read them uh, because of their focus on things that I personally deemed a bit superficial, like fashion um, and and how to uh, attract a man and how to keep a man, etc. Um, one of my colleagues at Glamour, where I worked from 99 to 2001, described what we did as um, the creation of insecurities among our readers and then, and then, you know, solving those insecurities for them. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, certainly women have always, for a long time, have worried about body image and, and, you know, we all want to be loved and find love. But, so when I say for the creation of insecurities, I mean things like one of the most famous cover lines on Glamour, which was actually published the month before I got there, was um, what he thinks of your orgasm face. <laughs> and this was this was something that you know we we didn't we as women at least hadn't realized we had to worry about. <laughs> so this was this, this was very um, it was it, it was you know I can laugh about it now and at times we had fun coming up with crazy headlines, 
Um, but it was a bit soul killing to, to be producing this sort of stuff. And, 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 and as much as I knew not to take it seriously, I knew how the sausage was made. I wasn't so sure that the readers of, of the magazine um, knew that it was essentially just BS. Uh, uh, so, you know, it was interesting because I had, as, as, as a consumer of the internet, I read blogs. Um, I read Gawker in its early incarnation. Um, I would read the news sites of, of legacy media uh, outlets like The Times and, and CNN, and I used the internet for shopping, which is to say I would order books on Amazon. But I was not um, a digital native by any stretch of the imagination. So when I was asked in, two, in late 2006 if I wanted to help start a site for Gawker Media that would be focused on women, my first impulse was to say absolutely not. There was no one that I knew at that time who was moving from print media to digital. Uh, and digital media was not particularly high paying. I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money. At the time, I was working at InStyle magazine as an editor. I wasn't making a lot of money, but certainly what I heard was that the, the editors and writers on blogs, especially at Gawker Media, were making about $12 a post. At the time, I was 34 years old. I couldn't afford to make $12 a post. Um, and, and so I immediately you know, balked at the idea of going over there. What what sold me on the idea of, of leaving in style and going to work for Gawker Media was that, or one, and probably most importantly, they offered to match my salary um, that, that I was making at InStyle, which was kind of unprecedented. This was the beginning of at least owner Nick Denton wanting to bring in old media people and to pay them fairly and not just use 22-year-olds who were just out of school. Um, secondly, uh, I had felt so much uh, frustration and angst and disgust with the, the sort of content that I had overseen and written for so many years that it felt like maybe this might be an opportunity for me to um, reverse some of the damage my friends and I had, had done. Um, now, I wasn't asked to start a site, a site that would reverse the damage that women's magazines had done. That's, I was asked to start a site that would, that would concentrate on fashion and celebrity and would be for women. Because Gawker Media, at least at the time, was, 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 was a bit contrary to what you saw in the legacy media, it would make sense that we would um, go after women's magazines in the same way that Gizmodo, their tech site, went after Apple Computer, or Deadspin, their sports site, went after um, ESPN to kind of go after the big, the, big, the big guns in any industry. But it was never communicated to me that I should talk about feminism, for example. Um, <clears throat> but my decision was that we were going to do a site that would talk about things that women were interested in, including fashion and celebrity, but not do it in a way that was um, going to uh, feed into existing insecurities or create new ones, and that would pair the stuff or the interest in the kind of superficial with um, interest in things that are a little bit more serious. Because one thing that always frustrated me about women's magazines was that uh, they, they didn't respect the intelligence of the young women um, who read them. They assumed that we didn't care about th more serious issues like politics, whether th that be gender politics or electoral politics. I had no, I had no um, idea whether this was going to work. Um, there was not a site that I was trying to model Jezebel after. It was basically my trying to create a site that I would want to read. Um, and before it launched, and it was in this kind of test blog phase, there were a number of people, all of them male, who read the test blog and said, I don't think this is going to work. Um, which was scary to me, but it also lit a fire 
in me to prove them wrong. Uh, and the short story is that it launched in, in um, May 2007, and it, it did work out eventually. I mean, we, we, we launched and we got a lot of attention, and there seemed to be a hunger for the sort of stuff that we were doing. It was only about a year and a half in. It was after the 2008 election, which actually I think was the high point of my, of my time at Jezebel, which, because it gave us a, an excuse to talk about politics a lot. And it was a pretty exciting you know, primary and then general election that had a lot of aspects to it that touched on both gender politics and racial politics. <clears throat> but our traffic surged in 2008, and I felt that that was um, indicative and proof of the fact that young women do want to talk about politics and that they, and that they care about them quite a bit. It was after that that the owner of the company, Nick Denton, um, seemed to understand what it was that I was doing. He wasn't really paying much attention to us. We were kind of under, under his radar uh, a bit. And it was maybe in late 2008, early 2009, when he requested that I stop posting so much about politics. At that point, the site was what it was. I mean, it was, I was not going to turn the ship around. I was not going to um, defang it, so to speak. We were not going to stop talking about gender politics or electoral politics. But this was not what he'd asked me to do. So by 2010, I found myself in a little bit of a bind. I just felt that he um, he wanted me to make the side more, site more broadly general, um, to talk about things that I didn't feel comfortable talking about because I didn't know how to do it in a, in a smart way. Makeup, for example. I have nothing wrong with, you know, I have no problem with makeup, but I didn't know how to do content about makeup that felt intelligent. And so I uh, left in mid-2010, not in a huff. There was no, like, big drama. I just felt that I had proved my point that we could, you know, that we could create um, a women's media outlet that felt different from the ones that had come before it and that was smarter and was very explicitly political, had a very explicitly political point of view that we were unapologetic about, that would talk about feminism, that didn't um, treat feminism as a dirty word, and that we could, could draw an audience in. And so I felt that I had proved that. I also was very burnt out and I quit. <laughs> Uh, so fast forward to now, I'm now an editor at, at Fusion. I'm not sure how many of you know what Fusion is. The short version is that it is uh, a cable network that no one I know gets right now because, <laughs> <laughs> at least not in New York, it's not on Time Warner Cable. Um, a cable network and also a digital media outlet half owned by Univision and half owned by um, Disney slash ABC. And I'm the editor of Digital Voices there, which is a really um, unspecific title, but which means that I'm overseeing content that has a point of view and a sensibility, but unlike the stuff of Jezebel, is not as reactive to what's going on in the world. I, I, as, as much as I found that to be um, energizing, it also was exhausting to constantly have to pay attention to every single twist and turn of the news cycle and everything that was going on, not just in <coughs> pop culture, but in politics and you know everything else and to have a reaction to it, to have a take on it. At the time that we were doing that sort of stuff, there, was, there were sites that had you know, what they now call hot takes on, on, um, on the news of the day, but there weren't as many of them. I think that that uh, space has been a bit crowded, or has become a bit crowded, to the point where I kind of just tune that stuff out altogether. And I'm less interested now in, in immediate reactive um, takes on the news to things that take a bit longer to marinate and to produce. Uh, so for example, um, I'm working on interactives and mini, mini documentaries and um, graphic journalism. I'm not drawing, I'm just 
commissioning. But things that take sometimes you know weeks, days, weeks, if not months, to to execute, they they, they still touch on the the subjects that I find most important to me, which are gender politics and racial politics. But again, um, they're not the sort of thing. I'll put it this way. Someone else on the site, you know, had had content about Obama's speech the other day uh, for, for the anniversary of Selma, but that was not something that my section was going to do because that would have been more reactive. Um, and it's 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 been it's been a, a big relief to not have to um, constantly pay attention to what's going on in the news. Although I am a bit addicted to Twitter, so I haven't completely left it behind. So this is an example of the sort of thing that I that that, that I'm doing and that I want to continue doing. Um, and you know, unlike a blog post that I, the sorts of blog posts I used to edit, which would usually have a turnaround time of let's say, 90 to 120 minutes for me finding the, the 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 content we wanted to react to and assigning it to a writer and then having her write it and then me edit it and then me throw it up, this took five months to do. Um, so, again, I I do want to continue telling the stories of women and especially women of color, um, <coughs> but I want to do that in a way that amplifies their voices more than my or my writers um, translating what they're saying. This was, uh, so I, ha I had an idea to, to go to a, a foreign country, wasn't sure which one, to document how women are harassed on the street there. There's a, a young artist in New York uh, who had a project called Stop Telling Women to Smile uh, that she started in the United States, which involved her talking to women of all ages about their experiences with street harassment, and then she would paint a portrait, excuse me, draw a portrait of them uh, with a phrase underneath it uh, that would basically sum up what they wanted to say to people who harassed them on the street. She'd never done it abroad, and so I asked her if she would be interested in doing it abroad. She said, absolutely. We had to decide uh, what country I might take her to, and we decided on Mexico because Mexico is close by, <laughs> because uh, the, the street harassment of women in Mexico is very, very, very extreme, so much so that they have separate buses and train cars for, for females. Um, and because I personally felt like I didn't know a lot about Mexico other than what I saw on the news. And what I saw on the news was usually uniformly negative. This is not a happy story, but it, 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 is, it is not the sort of um, story about Mexico that we usually hear, which has to do with immigration or drugs um, and, 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 and that, sort, that sort of violence. And I wanted to you know, very much tell the stories of, of people who live not that far from us um, and experience things similar to what we do. So the plan was to go to Mexico City and take Tatiana, this artist, and, and have a meeting with local women and talk to them about their experiences with street harassment. Uh, we had two video cameras. Um, I wasn't sure how this was going to all shape up because I'd never done an interactive before. But I decided to do the interactive the way I think I thought I'd want to read it, and this is how it turned out. It took us four, took us five months to do. Uh, the first part of the interactive involves um, a kind of mosaic of, of videos of individual women telling the camera, uh, telling us what they go through every single every single day. I'm not going to play one because I don't know that if it's the audio is going to work. I can try, but um, <laughs> we don't know if it's going to load. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, it's not, I think the connection's too, a little bit too slow. So um, this is how the interactive begins, which I think was an interesting way to draw people in. You have this you know, myriad of faces, um, uh, and you can click on each one and, and hear their stories and understand who they are and what they go through. And then we go through the interactive um, in terms of, it's, it's almost like a travelogue and, and, and like a, chron a chronicle in chronological order of how things on the Mexico City trip happened. So for the first, uh, 
the first big element in his documentary about the entire project. Um, I'm not going to play it now, but you can see it's trying to load. As you scroll down, it tells you a little bit about Tatiana, about what we were aiming to do with this project. Um, and here's one of the portraits that Tatiana drew of, um, of one of the women we met. Her name's Laura. And she says here, I work out because I like to work out. It's not for you. What I'm wearing, it's for me. So this is the sort of portrait that would then get turned into po a poster. Um, this was right after she finished drawings. I took a picture in the hotel room we were staying in. There was a, a meeting with local women that we documented. One of the posters that Tatiana and I did in the United States is, is, behind, all, is behind all them there. Um, so I, I basically wanted to do a, a series of mini documentaries within an interactive, and I wasn't sure if that was going to work. Um, as you can see, there are at least four different videos that explain the process of, of the trip. There's a time lapse here of her drawing. She draws from photos that she takes. And then we have this uh, map element that was, I, we were unable to execute it in the way I wanted to. I literally wanted to have a map of Mexico City with little dots that you would touch, and, and those would be the locations that we'd put posters up. Uh, they couldn't really do that, but the, as you can see, they, um, you can go through the, like, the different uh, locations where we put posters up. It's not loading, but uh, this was the kind of default. This was kind of like what we had to go with because the, the interactive designers didn't, we weren't able to actually make a map of Mexico City that would work this way. And then there was a kind of wrap-up video and a call to other women to tell us their experiences with street harassment, both in Mexico City and elsewhere, um, using a hashtag. So. It, it's, it's unfortunate I can't play all this stuff for you, but this was the sort of thing I'd never done before. It's certainly the sort of thing we would have talked about, say, on Jezebel, street harassment. We did quite a bit, even you know, in terms of Tatiana's art project in, in New York City. But talking about it and showing it um, were two different things. And so what I'm trying to do with Fusion is to figure out how to tell stories like this in a way that I've never done before. I, my background is you know, in print, in text, not in video, not in interactives. Um, this is one of the projects I think I'm most proud of that we've done, just in terms of the scale of its ambition and the amount of time it took, and it was very expensive to produce because we had to travel to Mexico. Um, and the fact that Fusion is letting us, letting me do this sort of thing is, is, is exciting and kind of unprecedented for me, only because my experience previously with digital media has been that the budgets were very small, um, like a Gopher Media, where it was considered a lot of money to spend $200 on um, a piece by a freelancer. Um, this was many, many, many times <laughs> uh, the, the cost of that and um, was, was perceived, received pretty well when I launched it um, in early February. So I'm not sure if I'm, if you want to start asking questions yeah, or... Let's start asking questions. I'd like to start and then we'll open it up. Um, I want you, if you would, to step back and look at where you see the online world in terms of news and advocacy or that, and the combination that Jezebel, for instance, represents, and that this site in its own way represents. Mm -hmm. Where do you see this going? I mean, is it something that is going to have a strong economic base that will sustain it, will allow people like you to be paid a living wage and do your work? Is it like Nick Sinai was telling me this morning that a tech site that he follows and respects is closed down? Yeah, Giga Ohm, yeah. Uh, because they ran out of money? Yeah. Uh, what, where do you see things? Well, you know, 
I, I don't I can't make predictions about about the future and and I think part of the reason that I'm able to do what I do at least with fusion is because of the fact that they're owned by large companies that aren't relying on us to make the money for them I mean I think Disney's probably in great financial shape thanks to many things including the success of frozen for example because we, we've often joked that like frozen is paying our salaries um, in, in terms of where advocacy journalism is going when I started Jezebel, um, there were certainly sites that were explicitly political uh, that we followed and then we linked to all the time. Um, but I can't say that they were, I can't say whether or not they were making a lot of money uh, or not. What, 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 what sites like Jezebel and, and, and sites that came before it did suggest, though, was that there was a, an audience for this sort of content and that the audience was a lot bigger than maybe some people had anticipated. Um, and I still believe that that's true. I, I do think that in the term, in the, in the case of like women's media, uh, the field has gotten very crowded. But I've seen, you know, after this like, explosion of women's media that happened in 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, more of a focus on media that um, wanted to parse issues of, of racial politics. Um, whether or not that's profitable, I mean, part of me doesn't really care <laughs> because it's not my money. Mm -hmm. I just want to do things that, that interest me, and maybe that sounds you know, um, a bit glib for me to say, but uh, if, if I were to start my own outlet that I had to fund or find funding for, I would probably be thinking about these things, you know, at least the, like the business side of it a, a bit more, a bit more carefully. But I do see that there is a hunger for, for um, media, at least digitally, that, that has a point of view, um, that has a certain political point of view, I would argue that has a progressive point point of view. I don't really pay attention to non-progressive points of view, so I can't speak about about outlets that that are kind of ideologically opposed to what I personally believe in. But um, whether whether or not it's it's financially sustainable is a good question, and I would suspect that you know there are a lot of outlets that are going to succeed, and a lot of them that are going to fail, just like any other um, any other kind of. Focus. Well, it, it, we were talking before uh, before uh, Anna came in about. Jezebel's, the lead on Jezebel's site today on the homepage is 10 terrible movies that everyone should see. I mm -hmm. mean, it was, you know, it was the kind of, you'd see it on BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. And among the movies, the 10 movies was, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space, mm -hmm. that sort of notorious Ed Wood one, and the, and the episode one of the Star Wars series. I mm -hmm. mean, the point is, it, it had nothing whatsoever yeah. to do with, with the idea of Jezebel being something that was for a, a feminine yeah. or feminist sensibility. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that that's there. But I just wonder, is the, I mean, Jezebel is being, is being groomed and edited and curated for an audience of women, mm -hmm. apparently still, but an audience of women that are not necessarily as interested in politics. And is that... Is that the future of these kinds of sites? Are they going to have to morph into becoming more like BuzzFeed? Well, I can only I can only talk about my own experience editing the sites. And sites, I don't I don't make the decisions as to what happens there now, and I don't know why them. You know, I can't speak as to why they make the decisions that they do. But I can I can say this that um, that sort of post that you're describing that they put up today is definitely the sort of post that's meant to get traffic. Um, it's probably not going to be shared that much. It's, it's not controversial. Mm -hmm. it, isn't, it isn't talking about something you know that big that happened in the world. It, but so it, it might get shared a little bit, but it's not. It's not. Um, it's not controversial. 
we definitely, when I was running the site, would do posts like that uh, because I never felt that every single post we did had to be explicitly political. We, we're not a feminist site. There, and I, I say that because there are sites that I consider to be explicitly feminist that I would describe as feminist sites, but that's because every single piece of content they put up was um, explicitly made to talk about gender politics. I was trying to be a little subversive about it. So, for example, we would do a recap of Mad Men, but we'd talk about the gender politics in that episode of Mad Men. Um, so, you know, people have described this as like putting spinach in a brownie. I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would describe it that way exactly, but I was trying to inject um, you know, an awareness of racial and gender politics into coverage of things that were kind of more broadly um, um, of interest to, to, to young women, or especially young women, like pop culture and fashion and celebrity. And, and I was, in, in, in sense, trying to politicize our readers. What was very disappointing sometimes was that um, it, was very, it was very clear to me to see how uh, a story that we spent 45 minutes on that had to do with, I don't know, whatever Lindsay Lohan was wearing that day uh, while she went shopping would do so much better traffic-wise than something a writer had spent four hours or maybe four, even four days on, that, that it was a more serious in tone. Uh, I tried to counteract that by giving the latter sort of piece more importance, like literally visually more importance on the homepage. But this was back when people read homepages, and they don't read homepages anymore. They, get, they come to stuff through Facebook and Twitter. Um, so I tried to telegraph on the site what I deemed most important. So the, the, the Lindsay Lohan post would, you know, would have a regular size headline, and maybe the one that I described that took someone four hours, it might be about um, the erosion of reproductive rights around the country, would get a bigger headline and have a kind of, it would announce itself more. So I tried to telegraph what, what, what I felt important in that way. Um, but it was a bit discouraging, and I think probably still is, to see how quickly people click on the more superficial stuff than the, than the more serious stuff. I think that, again, one way we tried to counteract that was to inject serious stuff into the superficial, but that didn't always work. Um, you know, as for whether, I mean, I'll put it this way. It, it it was a necessary part of the job. I wish that we hadn't had to do posts about Lindsay Lohan's clothes or about Britney Spears or whoever was like the kind of starlet at the time that was getting the most attention. But we couldn't ignore it altogether. And I had been asked to create a site that had to deal with celebrity, so I, I couldn't. I, I had to, we had to talk about this stuff. It was I, I wouldn't say I held my nose as as we did it, um, but it, it it wasn't it wasn't my it wouldn't have been my first choice for the sort of content we wanted to do. Given that you don't go to homepages anymore, <laughs> do you do you find that if you were talking to, if you were to list the five places that Facebook and Twitter send you uh, more often than any others? Outlets? Yeah, what would they be? Only Twitter because I don't want to look at Facebook. Um, Facebook is something that I, I try to avoid, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak only of what I get sent to via Twitter. Probably BuzzFeed, usually when they have some I'll put it this way. My Twitter feed is full of a lot of people who have a lot of serious things to say and a lot of opinions. And I respect that to a point, but it also gets exhausting. So when I click through on something, it usually is on something that's a bit, that's a bit more superficial, so to speak. So when BuzzFeed does a post about, you know, like, here's, here are the 10 cutest photos of a kangaroo joey that I'm going <laughs> to click on. I'm probably more likely to click on that. This is a break from everyone, you know, fighting with each other and, and, and trying to one-up each other. Um, in, in the other posts on my Twitter feed. Tw Twitter is very much about performance, which is both entertaining but also exhausting. Um, BuzzFeed's one of them. The Times is definitely one of them. 
Um, although I actually will go to the, to the New York Times' the homepage quite often. That's actually one of the only homepages I go to uh, regularly. Um, I will click on, what else am I clicking on lately? Things on Medium. I'm noticing there's a lot of stuff on Medium that I'm, that I'm finding myself attracted to. Um, Vox at some, at some points. Um, I was actually telling uh, Alicia, who's, who's, who's one of the Neiman fellows who's sitting at the end of the table here, how much more interested I am right now in visual storytelling than I am in, than in, I am in words. I, I really do feel exhausted by the amount of pontificating that goes on, not just on media sites, you know, by opinion writers, but on social media. It just, I, I, I almost don't care anymore. Everyone has an opinion. And I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in, 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 in stories that are told visually, I think, than in um, rhetoric, mm. using rhetoric. Um, so I do click on, um, there's, a, there's a part of the Atlantic's website that's called uh, In Focus, which is photojournalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, blog and I, I click on that quite a bit. If, if if there's an image attached to a tweet, I'm more much more likely to look at it than I than than than, than I was before. Um, but you know, in terms of it's interesting. In terms of like the the home pages that I still go to it, it, to read news, it is the New York Times dot com. Is that behind a wall? Is that a behind a wall? Yeah. You mean like the paywall? Yeah. No, usually usually if you go through. Go to it through Twitter. Well, if you, if you go to it through Twitter, it isn't. But I have a subscription, so when I when I click on it, I can see whatever I want because um, I merge the digital subscription with the paper. Let, one. let me open it up. I will invite students first, and then we'll open it to everyone if there's. Could you finish? Why do you avoid Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason I avoid Facebook is the reason that I'm now starting to fire, find myself tired of Twitter, which is the performative nature of it. Um, I'm not saying that everyone on Twitter is being performative, but uh, I don't. I have no interest in sharing personal details of my life on Facebook, or at least not what I consider to be personal. And I don't like the the kind of performative nature of the people that I know, you know, showing off their vacation or their or the the outfit they just bought or the meal that they just had. It just it just feels it feels very tiring to me. Um, it was just not something I ever really. I never really got into Facebook, and I think that's because. I felt that I had a choice. I could do Twitter or Facebook, and I chose Twitter. I, I don't know that I have the, the, the bandwidth to handle two social media um, platforms. Instagram was something that I loved in the beginning, but I have found too exhausting as well, so I've kind of let go. Students. Natalie. Hi, Hi. Natalie. I'm a career student here. Um, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but where does Disney see Fusion kind of down the road, or are you part of like the evolution of what it hopes to become, or what it's trying to do now, and how it's different from other Disney platforms? I'm not sure I have a good answer for that, because I'm never in those discussions, which I'm kind of relieved not to be. It's like I don't have to worry about that stuff as much. It seems to me that, you know, with, with Disney and Univision, which is, an, you know, equal partner, one is to capture the imagination of young adults, often called, often called millennials. I try to avoid that phrase. I think it's too marketing speak. Um, and, and, and to reflect the diversity of that generation, um, both in the sorts of stories we do and in the sensibility that we have. I don't know that there's any like, magic way to attract millennials. I, I, would, I would say, if someone asked me, how do you get millennials? And in fact, when, when I took the job, some news outlet wrote about my taking the job at Fusion, and there was a headline that said, the millennial whisperer, which is ridiculous, because <laughs> I, I, I know no more about millennials than anybody else, except, and I assume that the way to reach them is to do good content 
um, and not talk down to them like they're like, you know, and, and pat them on the head, but to do things, you know, that they're interested in. So for example, someone my age may not be as interested in reading about student loan debt because they paid off their student loans finally, or at least I have. But someone who's in her, his or her 25, <laughs> someone who's 25 years old, that might be a much, much more pressing concern for him or her. So, um, but, but, but I don't, I don't think that means that you tailor your content just to things that, 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 um, only millennials will be interested in. It's to, it's, it's to just treat them like human beings and, and, and to have a, a sense of curiosity and a, and a, and a feeling of fun um, with how you present information. I think also younger people are more prone to wanting to look at images as well than, than to read long stories. I could be wrong. But uh, in terms of what Disney wants, so my, my understanding is what they want is, is, is to you know, have a, a, a media property that um, you know, is both digital and, and, and cable that appeals to that generation. But I'm not sure that there's like a secret recipe for how to do that. What's the cable programming? The cable programming, well, I don't get the cable channel. because So, so all I, so I, I, I kind of get a sense of what they do because I see emails being thrown around. Um, but the cable programming is, it seems to be right now, a mix of kind of comedy stuff. There's, there's a show called... Um, Does anybody uh, know it? Does anybody? You can see it online. Yeah, yeah, I, we don't, I yeah. Don't it's 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 not it's not meant for me. And and, and and the thing the thing is is that I think the cable programming is very different from what's running is it on the website. Is meant for these millennials that yeah. you're supposed yeah, to be whispering to? Yeah, there's one show called No You Shut Up that I believe it involves puppets. <laughs> uh, but then but then there are more serious shows like like Jorge Ramos anchors a show in um, which he gets really great um, gets in terms of his guests. Uh, and and I think that you know the the hope is that his show which which. You know, he's, he, he goes after politicians uh, in, in a way that's, I wouldn't call it aggressive, but assertive and important. And we're going into the next election cycle. And, and you know, um, young people are increasingly important voting block, and they are increasingly diverse ethnically and otherwise. And I think the sort of uh, interviews and, and topics he covers um, reflect that. There's another show uh, being hosted by Alicia Menendez, who uh, is trying to do more female-centric um, topics on her show. Is it bilingual presentations? No, it's in English. All in English? No. So why are they having so much trouble getting on cable systems? I think, it, my understanding is that it's hard to get on cable systems, period. That you have to, it takes a long time to make these For deals. For Disney and ABC, I would think it would not be that. Hard. I don't, I, I have no idea how the TV business works, but, but mm. yeah. I mean, I know they just signed a deal with DirecTV, and I think it's just a slow process. But, you know, I mean, I, have, I, I don't know. I don't want to worry about it. There is a, a chasm between digital journalists and, and legacy journalists. Mm -hmm. Legacy journalists often look at those who have thrived in the digital world with a combination of fascination and jealousy and awe mm -hmm. um, and, and interest in perhaps trying to figure out how to bridge that chasm and survive or thrive there. Going the other way, though, it seems like, you know, it could be described as, you know, they're just not into you. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if there is, um, if that chasm is real, and to what extent can legacy journalists, if they're interested in digital journalism, make the kind of move that you've made? And that's a really find a space there. That's a really good question because, it, for me, it felt like a fluke. Like I fell into it. Like I, I didn't look to go to, dig to digital journalism. I was asked to, and and because I was so fed up with the stuff I'd been doing, I decided to take a leap of faith and 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 do it. Um, so for me, a lot of it was fear and exhaustion that, that propelled me in that direction. Um, I would suspect that 
as much as as much as I hear about legacy journalists uh, bemoaning digital journalism, I, I, I it does go the other way. I do think that digital journalists or native digital journalists can be a little dismissive of of the things that legacy journalists have to bring to the table. Um, like fact-checking, <laughs> um, you know, sourcing, et cetera. Um, for someone who's in legacy media who wants to move to digital, well, on the, on the one hand, I'd say it's, it's easier than ever. There's all these outlets with all this funding, and you know, they're throwing money around all over the place. Um, but I do think that there is a bit of bias among digital media gatekeepers towards legacy journalists. I think that... I'll put it this way, and, and, and I'm, not immune to, I'm not immune to it. When I was hiring people for Jezebel, <clears throat> one of the important things to me was to hire people that didn't necessarily have a fancy resume because it was not going to be an indication of actually how good they were going to be able to execute what they needed to do, which was to you know, read stories, um, co you know, have them coalesce in their head, have a point of view, regurgitate it in their own voice, and do all this within you know, 90 minutes. Um, and I also wanted to give a chance to people who didn't have fancy resumes, which is to say, who weren't the usual suspects. You know, when I had when I had come up in, in in New York media, the majority of the of the people that I worked with were Caucasian, and they had gone to very um, prominent schools. Uh, there was an assumption that New York was the center of the universe. There wasn't a lot of diversity ethnically at all. Um, when I worked for Glamour. I'll put it this way. When I worked for Condé Nast, in the entire building, there were maybe three other African-American editorial staffers that I ever saw, and usually in the, in the cafeteria. And everyone else that was black in the building was a security guard or a mailroom guy or a cafeteria worker. It was very, very, um, I wouldn't say it was demoralizing, but it was upsetting that, that being in this tower that, that created so much media for the outside world didn't actually reflect the world around it. So um, when I was trying to hire, I was trying to hire people who did not come up through traditional channels and, 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 and reflect the kind of narrow-mindedness of the media at that time. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but, but I, I, I do think that, I do think that the, the, there are a lot of people in digital media who, who are excited by the talent out there, the fact that you don't have to be in New York or live in New York or have been an assistant at this magazine or gone to this school or your father knows this person or your mother knows that person. At the same time, I think that um, this appetite for grabbing people and you know, pulling them out of the obscurity does not bode well for legacy journalists who might want to make the switch. And I'm, and I'm a bit, I'm a bit um, biased in that way myself, I think. I think that I... Um, I'm less likely to be impressed by someone who has a a fancy resume than than I than I used to be. Um, I, I, but I'm also trying to like get young people, so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. No, you but did. You did this, there's there's this. It's, it's like I want to I want to bring in new voices, but I think that sometimes we do that at the expense of of older voices. Um, and ideally, we could have a, a we could find a balance there. Do those new voices want? and feel entitled to express those voices in a way that the legacy ones were more sort of uh, committed to being more neutral? I think, I don't know if they, yes, I think some of them do feel entitled. I mean, I, I hesitate to use that word, but I've actually seen it in action. So yes, I would use, the, I think some of them do feel entitled to, to, to that. Um, but I think there's a lot of entitlement that, you know, that, that sprung up around social media that, that, um, 
people should listen to whatever you have to say, uh, which I don't think is always the case or should be the case. Um, you know, I think it's great to empower people, especially uh, women, um, minority groups who have been historically marginalized and, and left out of the media conversation to, to have their voices heard and taken seriously. Um, that's one of the most exciting things about the internet economy, if you want to call it that, that I've, that I've witnessed in the past 10 years. Uh, it's just, it's just, it just, it continues to blow my mind. Um, and I've actually seen how people start testing the waters with their voice in, 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 on platforms like Twitter or in the comments of our site many years ago and then move their way up into positions of relative power in the media. I mean, like they, they start getting assignments. They start getting freelance, freelance assignments and they get hired as a writer somewhere. I mean, I've actually seen this happen a number of times and it's it kind of blows my mind because, again, the gatekeepers that used to be there, well, they're still there, but they don't have as much power as they used to. Um, but but I do think that there's an expectation among some young, some young people that anything they have to say is worth being listened to. Um, that might be a function of how they were parented. I mean, I think there was, there was something, there was something in New York magazines yesterday about about how children become narcissists, you know, and it's really based on their parents telling them that they're special snowflakes. Um, and so, I don't want to like harsh on on young adults and, and that they were all parented wrong. But but I, there is some behavior that I see among young people that's a little, you know, tiring, and, and, and it's especially evident online. Um, and you know. I'll put it this way. There are some young journalists that have never known what it is to try and adopt a neutral stance on something in terms of their writing or reporting. And I think that that's where legacy media could, could really um, come in and, 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 and be of help. There's, I understand that, that, that like opinion journalism and, and, and media that has a point of view is very attractive to people. I certainly... Again, I started a site that was very opinionated and unapologetically so. I tend to gravitate towards that stuff. But um, when it gets in the way of facts and truth is when it becomes disturbing to me. And I do, I do see a bit of that. Uh, may, maybe not so much on digital media outlets as I do on social media, but there does seem to be a disregard for facts and the truth in service of a particular agenda that is, seems specific to a certain generation, and I don't like it. Lauren. Hi. I'm curious how the uh, women's voices the harassment piece, mm -hmm. the metrics were, uh, and how your bosses um, you know, analyzed it in terms of metrics, mm -hmm. did it get the numbers that it expected to get, that you expected it to get, and how patient do you think they're going to be with you developing future stories like Um. I, I have an answer that is both not going to answer your, your question and, and will answer it. The first part is that I don't know what the metrics are because I was actually asked this the other day um, by a young woman who was writing a piece for the American Journalism Review. She goes, you know, what did it, what did it, how did it do traffic-wise? And I said, I don't know. And, you know, that sounded totally horrible to, just to say, but I hadn't actually asked the research <coughs> team to tell me what the, what the numbers were because I kind of didn't care. I felt like, I felt that it was it had been impactful enough in terms of the reaction we got from readers and from other people in the media um, that, I, that it didn't much matter to me what the traffic was. And I, you know, we, have, we have chart beats, so I can kind of see how, I can see how it was doing um, over a number of weeks, and it was sustaining itself. It wasn't, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the sort of piece that was supposed to blow up and then it would just go away. Like, it was supposed to have a long shelf life, and I think it still is, you know, churning out um, page views. But the actual 
number, I have no idea. And, I'm, and actually, I put in a request over the weekend to find out what that number is. And I'm kind of afraid to find out. Like, what if it's like a thousand? <laughs> then I'm going to be really, really, really bummed because, you know, the return on investment <laughs> will, will be um, in, in, in the extreme negative. Um, but, you know, when I asked permission to do that piece, I don't think that my boss thought that it was going to be some sort of like viral hit. Um, I mean, we had never done something like that before. I don't know that there's something similar to this out there that we could have, you know, used as, as precedent or as example. So he knew exactly when I pitched it to him that it was it was unlikely to be the sort of post that I click on when I see when I on Twitter, like the BuzzFeed one about kangaroo joeys. But um, the 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 mandate, at least that I was given, was to do stories that that were important and that were important to me and, and would be important to. Um, you know, a quote, young, diverse America. And I, and I include Mexico in that, in that, in that description, you know, the, the Americas. Um, so I feel, I felt gratified by the reception that it received. I felt gratified by how it turned out. I felt gratified by the press that it got. Um, what the numbers were, I don't know. And, I, and I'll, I'll know in the next two days. And it's possible I'll be really bummed about it. But you know, the, but like, that's nothing new. In, this, in the same way that I used to be bummed at Jezebel, again, when, when a post that would take 30 seconds, like a picture, would do much better than, um, than something someone had worked four did hours it, on. Did it have an impact in Mexico? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, here, the, the problem, the, one, one of the biggest challenges with that is that I don't speak Spanish. So, these interviews were all conducted in Spanish, and there was a translator, and we had, and and so, when we were promoting the piece it, to to Spanish language speaking media outlets, one of the women in, in, that that works for me who does speak Spanish was the one who was sending the emails, and he was getting emails back, and she would translate them for me, and there was you know definitely interest in it, but I'm not sure that there were it, it made it made an impact in the sense that. Now this this Mexican government is going to crack down on on the harassment of women in, in some different way. Um, I think what it did is it, it it certainly made an impact among the women who wrote into us, um, but it's hard to, it's hard to quantify or 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 extrapolate from hearing from let's say 150 people to, to what that really means. Yes. No, no, but 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 they're speaking in Spanish with with English subtitles, so you can hear them speaking Spanish. So yeah. Did you and then you? Um, I'm Lauren. I'm a first year master's student. Um, you talked a little bit about consumption from like the pre 2010 days when you were at Jezebel from the homepage. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious now that uh, social media has saturated the market a lot more. I'm curious if you've seen a change or if you feel that there's been a change in the consumption between, say, the Lindsay Lohan article and the reproductive rights article. Mm -hmm. Well, wait, do you mean if there's if there's been a change in, in, in how much people click on that sort of stuff? Or? Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you think that um, people coming to articles through social media mm -hmm. rather than from the homepage, mm -hmm. if you feel that there's been a change either way shifting towards, say, the Lindsay Lohan yeah. content, or yeah. if you feel that there's been more of a shift towards the more serious content. That's it. Because because the home page would be the place where they would be more apt to click on Lindsay Lohan is what you're arguing. Um, not necessarily arguing. I'm just wondering yeah. if there's been a change either way. That's an interesting question. I, I would say I'm not sure if there's been a change, but let me give you an example. Um, Jezebel, for the three years that I ran it, for most of the three years that I ran it, was the most was the one site in the Gawker Media Network that had the most comments, um, which was considered a, 
you know, a metric or, or indicator of engagement. And it, and it certainly was. We had more comments even than their video gaming site, which was you know, very heavily commented upon. Or we were always in, you know, in a race neck and neck with Kotaku. Now, what you would see is you would see more page views on a, let's say, a Lindsay Lohan picture, but you would see more comments on the piece about um, the sexual assault of a, of a high school student, let's say, somewhere in Oklahoma. Uh, so, and I, and I know people have, have, have talked about this at length over the past couple of years, like this idea of like outrage culture or things that make you angry. Um, you definitely saw that in play on the site in terms of the number of comments that something got. And I think that's translated to social media in the sense that uh, people might look at a picture of Lindsay Lohan, but they may not share it because they seem to be sharing things that, that get them worked up or, or really happy. I mean, I, I, mean I, I share things that make me really happy as well, but I also share things that get me worked up. So maybe there's a connection there. Um, what, what, what that kind of dissonance did to Jezebel when I was running it and probably still does today is that uh, it, it, like, someone coming into the site would, would assume that we got all of our traffic off of posts about social or sociopolitical or gender po issues or gender politics, when in fact most of the traffic was being directed at the celebrity stuff. Um, you just wouldn't know that based on the conversations that were going on. And I think that I think that, that that's applicable to social media. I don't know that I'm seeing people on social media sharing celebrity news in the same way that they're sharing, um, you know, like last night, the, the, the news about the senators writing to the uh, mullahs of Iran, Iran, you know, it just, it just, I'm, I doubt that, I doubt that, I doubt that, I'll put it this way, things you feel neutral about, you're just not as, as likely to share them as you are, um, things that you're you know, incredibly passionate or, or, or outraged about, and I, that was evident in the comments on the site, I think it probably still is on websites, and it's evident in the ways that people share social, social media. Hi, Anna. Hi. Thank you for being here. And I'm Dawn Trice. I'm a Neiman Fellow this year from Chicago. I'm here with Lori and Alicia. Um, I'm, I wrote a story, a column a few years ago about young girls who were being street harassed mm -hmm. by grown men mm -hmm. on a street called Morse Avenue in Chicago. Mm -hmm. and they got an amazing amount of t attention. Um, but that aside, I'm wondering if you, um, if you think at all, I know that you didn't follow the metrics on that, that particular that one, yeah. Piece, mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if that at all is in the back of your mind. Um, if you're worried at some point, you will have to, um, if, you know, clickbait will be oh, yeah. something that your editors are looking at. And if how does that um, uh, affect what you do now? Yeah, I, I, I definitely worry about it. In fact, um, I, I was lamenting to my deputy, um, a writer and editor named Latoya Peterson, the other day, a couple weeks ago. She had. Um, she had written in anger, some anger, a kind of response opinion piece to uh, something that had broken out on the internet the day before, which was, the short version was, there's a cast member of um, the, the Daily Show, an African-American cast member, who said publicly that she didn't want to try for the top spot, that now that Jon Stewart was vacating it. And then someone on a website took her to task, was like, you know, for, for, for not for not wanting the 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 seat that John Stewart was vacating, and then there was a lot of discussion about how this other writer was telling an African American woman how she should conduct her life. So that's that's a really bad you know um, summary of it, of it. But Latoya then you know uh, 
inserted herself into the conversation, you know, in a really intelligent way. But it took her like two hours to do. This is something she's been dealing with her whole life. You know, it, it, it didn't involve research. It involved like some some investigation into her into herself and her own experiences and as an African-American woman being told how she should feel about things or what she should do. And that post went bananas. And so it's, that's the sort of thing, you know, the editor, our editor was, was very happy, obviously, with the piece and with how it did traffic wise. But I said to Latoya, like over Gtel, I said, don't do, don't do that too, too often. Because then that's going to be the expectation is like, have a take, have a hot take, have a reaction to something that's happened in the news, um, as opposed to us being able to focus on these longer form things. So it does concern me. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Like no one said, just write hot takes all the time. But but in in, in the larger scheme of things, there there are times when I when I worry that you know the 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 people who run the fusion parent companies will look at the more kind of considered slow baking pieces that we're doing and 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 you know perhaps rightly as business people say, well, what if you took that money and funneled it into faster you know. Um, Hyperspeed content, so so it, it does concern me, but not because anyone's said anything yet. But I'm very aware of the fact that it could that it could happen. I mean, listen, it kind of happened to me at Jezebel. Again, it wasn't um, a big fight that broke out, but being told, you know, or having it gently suggested that I stop posting so much about politics and why don't we do some stuff about makeup? <laughs> I know what that means. Um, so I'll, you know. I, I, I would love I would love a, I would love a, a job where we could do whatever we want without, without having to worry at all about about metrics or about um, uh, revenue. But you know you like you hear about it in certain ways. So that hasn't happened yet, but I, it does concern me. Yes, well, my my name is Gisla. I'm a, I'm a law fellow at the design school. Mm -hmm. um, it, my question concerns the last thing you just said. I mean, why don't you open up your own web page, which would be in your own name, or mm -hmm. at least you would run it? Yeah. You never have to worry about clickbaits. I mean, the money is, is all over the place right now. Like, you know, Nate Silver kind of thing. Uh, well, I'm not Nate Silver, but, <laughs> but, but, well, but Nate Silver's site is owned by Disney as well. I mean, so I think there are certain pressures he's probably under. I don't know. I've never spoken to him about it. But, you know, after I, I quit. He's under a lot of pressure. Yeah. After I, quit, after I quit running Jezebel, a lot of people said to me, why don't you start your own site? Because I used to complain to, to them that, if I could do things differently, I would have asked for some ownership of it. Uh, that I had worked very, 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 very hard, which is not a complaint, but that if I was gonna work 18 hours a day and never leave my computer, um, that it would be nice if I had had some ownership of what I was creating. I, got, I was paid, fairly. I have no complaints about my salary there, but I felt, I felt ownership over it, yet I, ha I had no ownership over it. Um, what I responded, I responded this way. At the time that I quit, I didn't want to start an, another site because I was so exhausted by the one I had just been working on. The reason that I haven't done something since is probably out of inertia, is it, you know, or or maybe some fear. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to start a site that was anything like the one that I did before, and I and I think rightly understand that that would be the easiest way to get money. I'm going to start you know, another you know, women's site because I did it once. I can do it again, but I don't want to repeat myself. Um, and so there hasn't been, I haven't had an idea of, of something that I feel that strongly about that I want to spend 18 hours a day 
working on it in, in that way. And 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 the the, you know, the benefit that Gawker Media had, or working for them had, was that they took care of the payroll, they took care of the tech issues, like when the site broke. Um, you know, I ran it and I worked on it very hard, but like those other like, ancillary things that are very important were not concerns of mine at all. And if I were to start my own thing, they would be. <laughs> they, you know, I would suddenly have to worry about business stuff and are people getting paid on time and, and you know, what health insurance should we get them? And, and you know, I, I just, I don't feel like I'm at a place where I feel like worrying about that sort of thing. But there are times when I think to myself, why haven't I started something new? Because it seems like there's all this money being thrown around. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just, it's just, I, I'm, I'm not ready for that. How big would the team need to be? For me? Yeah, I mean. To start I mean, something new? Yeah. It, it would have to be small, because I've noticed that like, outlets that have too many people, like it gets, it gets a bit fucked up, it gets very chaotic. And I think actually that's why we worked so well when we started Jezebel, there were just three of us, with myself and two other editors. We then grew, but starting small, I'd say there'd be three people, or four. That'd be it. Bill. I'm just curious, Anna, is there any uh, editorial pressure you feel from, from Disney or from Univision or anything about what you can or can't do if you, if you, you know, had something critical to say about Frozen? Would you hear about that? <laughs> you know to steer clear of it? The... I should test that out. <laughs> um, I haven't heard anything, but like it, 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 would, it would go through many other channels before it would get to me. Um, so it's possible that things have been expressed and they just, they just haven't reached me. I mean, the only the only thing that's, that's that's occurred so far is with that one interactive, there was a there, there's a standards person which I'm not accustomed to because you know God Media doesn't have a standards person. I mean, we had we had a lawyer, but um, she she expressed concern or expressed concern that higher ups might find it concerning that there was so much bad language in that interactive, and I responded and said, well, that's the point. I mean, these men are saying really discussing obscene things to, to these women. Um, and that's my argument against not bleeping stuff um, or blurring out um, certain words in the, in the subtitles. And that was fine. I mean, like, that's all I said and it was over. But she did raise it as a question. But I'm not accustomed to that because I'm accustomed you know, to Gawker Media where we can say whatever we want. Last question to our benefactor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I noticed in the interactive that you showed there was a it seemed like the sort of process of making it was was front and center. Mm -hmm. um, is that sort of the nature of interactives right now because they're sort of new, or is that um, is there sort of a, a piece-specific ethos to that? I don't know if that's the nature of interactives now because I don't know enough about interactives. I mean, like I look at them, but 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 that's what I wanted to do with that because I felt the process of it was just as interesting as the outcome. Um, like watching her draw. Uh, watching her, Tatiana, the artist, interact with these women, um, showing how we were driving from place to place in this van with, you know, the two camera guys and a security guard and uh, the, the whole, like, cast of characters that, that had come along was as fascinating to me personally as, as, as the, the project itself. And I, and I hoped it might be to the, to the readers. But I'm not sure. And it, you know, it seemed to be. But I didn't set out thinking this is going to be the way, you know, the interactive is going to get attention. Um, it was purely based on my own intuition, if you can call it that. And that sounds really wishy-washy and touchy-feely. Um, but that's how I operate a lot of the time is like, what am I personally interested in with regards to a certain story? And let's, and let's, let's, let's go in that direction because um, 
usually my intuition has served me pretty well. Not always, but that's how I wanted to experience the story as a reader, and that's therefore how I wanted to present it. As a Anna reader. Holmes, thank you very thank much. Thank you. For